My name is uh, Randy Armstrong. Um, we've been coming to Creekside for about a year now, really enjoying it. Not on staff or anything, we're just here and enjoying the fellowship. Uh, at one point in the early 80s, or late 80s and early 90s, Steve wanted to make sure you knew that we spent nine years in France. We were working with believers in a couple of churches and a couple of small Bible schools over there. We came back to Yamhill County in 1993, and uh, I worked in the office at Bailey Nurseries, a plant nursery, working on computers there and helping out in a small community church in Yamhill until I retired in 2016. So that's about me. Now we can get down to business here. Second Timothy chapter 2. The text is verses 14 to 19, but when we read here in just a moment, I'd like to start reading in verse 8 because the text we're dealing with tonight start, or today starts out by saying, remind them of these things. So it would be a good idea to kind of have a context of uh, verse 14 before we get into it. But there are so many voices today in society. Um, I put something in... Google something and look at how many entries you have you can look at. I mean, it doesn't matter what the subject is. There's just so much to listen to, so much to read. So one of the questions each of us has to decide, whether we think about it or not, and most of us really probably don't think about it too much, but one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, who are we going to listen to? And why are we listening to the people we're listening to? Or why are we reading what we're reading, the books we're reading, or what we're looking at on Twitter, or looking at people's blogs. How do we decide who we're going to listen to? It's a question we really need to think about. Are you going to read or, and listen to people who, who agree with you? Is that how you determine what you're going to do? Are you going to listen to people just because they're interesting, or they're funny, or they're clever, or they're their tweets are just really cute, or Instagram, they've got the best stuff there, and uh, are you going to listen to people who make you feel good, you know? You don't, there are certain people you just stay away from because they always tell you things you don't like, um, like King Ahab in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's one prophet left, of God left, but I don't like him. He always says bad things about me, so I'm not going to listen to him. And, you know, we laugh at that, but stop and think about it. Analyze what you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're looking at, and ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? Because you, you do have a lot of options. I mean, there's one thing about American culture is you've got a lot of choices in everything. Every brand of whatever is, I mean, every kind of thing you want to buy, there's three or four choices, and you've got to go on Consumer Reports and check it all out. And it, it's just, it's just mind-boggling how many choices you have. It was really no different in the first century. Well, it was different at the store, probably. But it wasn't in, in terms of spiritual stuff, in terms of religious stuff, it was no different in the first century. You had a lot of options. You had a lot of choices. Second Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy in Second Timothy because 
Four, about four years before that, he left him in Ephesus, which was this cosmopolitan center that had all kinds of gods, and it, there was just all, all kinds of options there. And he left them there to straighten things out in the church because there were a lot of people who were teaching a lot of different stuff. And I won't read you all the passages, but just some phrases out of the first epistle Paul wrote to Timothy about four years before when he was at Ephesus. It talks about different doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, speculations, vain discussions, people who'd shipwrecked their faith, who were blaspheming God, who were devoting themselves to evil spirits and teachings of demons. They had all kinds of irreverent and silly myths going on, different doctrines, unhealthy cravings for controversy and quarrels about words. And then in chapter 6, verse 20 of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about avoiding irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So as we go into this part of 2 Timothy, know that even though we're separated from them chronologically by about 2,000 years, that some of the same dynamics were going on back then that are going on today. And this will help us maybe make the application today of what we're going to read about what Paul's telling Timothy. How do you decide who you're going to listen to? And how you answer the question is extremely important for your spiritual health. There is a whole lot of Jesus junk out there. There's a whole lot of stuff that's got the name Jesus tacked onto it. I'm not talking about t-shirts and stuff like that, though that's true too. But there's a whole lot of ideas and books and posts and webcasts and all these... You... There's a lot of stuff out there with Jesus' name on it that has nothing to do with the King of Glory. How many of you know about Waldo? How many of you look for Waldo? Where's Waldo? I mean, there's there's books of pictures of where's Waldo. And you look at these things, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people, and somewhere in there is Waldo. Now, if you were the enemy of the souls of humanity. And there was a man who came and lived a perfect life. And at the end of that perfect life, fully man and fully God, he gave up his life and took your sin and my sin upon himself and died for that sin. And then rose again three days later and conquered sin and death and offers people eternal life. If you couldn't get the people who were declaring this to be quiet, I mean... Satan has been trying to kill him and wipe him out for centuries. If you couldn't get people to be, them to be quiet, what would you do? You'd just create a whole bunch of counterfeits. And at the end of the day, what have you got? You've got a generation. You had it back then. You have it today. It's still the same. If the enemy of our souls can't silence the declaration of Jesus Christ, he's going to create a whole bunch of fakes. And so part of our task as believers, is to recognize Jesus Christ in the sea of things that are kind of like Jesus and that say they are Jesus. Now, there's others that flat out deny him. There's others that flat out reject him. There's that too. But we're talking about, especially in our situation, about those that say they're declaring the truth that's in Jesus Christ when the reality is it's false. It's been that way for centuries. And so while this letter is addressed primarily to Timothy and telling him how he's supposed to teach and how he's supposed to train other people to teach, it's of value for all of us because we have a responsibility of who we're going to listen to. 
and it's critical for our souls. Fifty years ago, John Stott said, the church of our day urgently needs to heed the message of this letter of 2 Timothy. All around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. That's a danger. And hopefully, in the few minutes I have this morning, as we go into the Word, the Lord will show us how we can be tuned in to what we really need to listen to and what the criteria we use for what we say and also for what we listen to. I'm going to ask that we pray and then we'll stand together and I'll read part of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Father, every person in this room, you saw before you created the world. You know everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever desired and everything we will ever say or think or feel or do. And you saw all that, and you've designed a plan in Christ to redeem us for yourself. Lord, you gave us your word so we know what that plan was, and you choose weak men to declare that, women and kids to declare it to their neighbors. And I just ask this morning, Lord, that you... Help me to stay on track, that your Holy Spirit speak to us. You know what we need to hear, every single one of us. And I pray that you would exalt Christ through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand and read from 2 Timothy. I'll begin reading in verse 8. Remember, he is telling Timothy what he is supposed to instruct these other people that are going to spread the gospel, how he's supposed to teach them. This is God's word to us this morning. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this section begins with kind of the ending of Timothy's direct instruction, or Paul's direct instruction to Timothy about what he's to instruct these people that he's going to entrust the word of God with, who are in turn going to teach others. And he tells them two things he's supposed to do with these, for, these, uh, for these guys. First, is, first of all is to remind them of these things, the things that we read. And uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, you can get the sermon that 
Eric preached, to the instructions about the, the expectations, the conditions of service for those who are going to declare the word of God, and, and then the focus on the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and the promise for faithfulness and the warning about being unfaithful that we see in verses 11, 12, and 13. Remind them of these things. And interestingly, that, that verb is a continuous verb. Keep reminding them of these things. We always need to be brought back to the basics, what the cost is, what's expected, that there's a way of doing it, who the focus is. Remember Jesus Christ, he said in verse 8. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, because that's central to everything that we have to say as ministers of the gospel. Notice in that whole section that I counted 13 references in the first 13 verses of chapter 2 to Jesus Christ. He is the center He is the focus of everything that we have to say. So he says, remind them. Keep reminding them of these things. And then, secondly, he says, charge them before God. Now, this, when the Greeks at that time in history would really want somebody to listen, they would say, I charge you before God, and then they'd tell them what to do. It was a, they understood. This is when something was really serious, you charge them before God. Now, Paul's going to do that with Timothy Himself, in chapter 4, he says, I charge you. And he'll tell Timothy what he's supposed to do. But right now he's telling Timothy, these guys you're training up, charge them before God to do what? Well, it's what not to do. Not to quarrel about words. That, is that really such a big deal? I, Steve was telling me this week about Eric's quote about there's nothing, no, no one who's more, who knows more than the first term seminary student. They know everything, and they're, willing, they're going to tell you about it. And there's a tendency for some of us guys, especially when we're younger, that you know, we know, and we're going to tell you we know, and if you're wrong, we're going to straighten you out. And, and this, apparently this was a big concern for Paul, and it's not, not a wonder. If you go back and look at 1 Timothy, you see several references to quarreling in 1 Timothy. He, he talks about, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, everywhere, I desire that men lift up holy hands without quarreling. I mean, is that really such a big deal? Apparently it was an issue. One of the qualifications for an elder, when he's telling Timothy, these are the guys you need to look for. One of the qualifications you need to look for is they're not quarrelsome. You know, some people just like a good verbal sparring. They love to fight. They love to argue about words. And Paul talks about the people there in Ephesus in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy that had an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. So this was an issue. And three times in chapter 2 here, he's going to mention quarreling. Next week, uh, whoever's bringing the message next week is going to deal with the other two references to quarreling. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Don't have anything to do with all these controversies. Don't get sidetracked because quarreling's not what we're here for. And it's not surprising, is it, when you think about it, if you're looking for a model, and Christ is more than a model, but he is a model as well. What does it say about him in Matthew 12, I think it is? He will not quarrel or cry out. Now, he didn't didn't compromise, but he never presented the truth of the gospel in a way where he was insulting somebody else and they're arguing back and forth and there's this big quarrel about words. And apparently it was such a big deal that Paul says, you need to charge these people that you're training up. Tell them this is really serious. Charge them before God, it says, not to quarrel about words. Why? Well, it doesn't do any good. Verse 14. 
it only ruins the hearers. And that word ruins is the word catastrophe. It's catastrophic in the church of Jesus Christ for people, even if they're dealing with the gospel itself, to present it in such a way where they're arguing and fighting over it. How much damage has been done in the body of Christ and for the witness of Christ down through the centuries by saints well-intentioned often who just can't let it go and are always arguing about words and debating the fine points of theology. Now, those things are important and we should deal with them and we should talk about them. But there's a vast difference between two people, two brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ or a brother and sister in Christ quarreling with each other over some point of doctrine and two humble children of God who sit down together with the word of God and say, let's see what God says. This is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Okay. And discussing it. They're totally different things. And Paul says, these guys you're raising up to preach the gospel, there's a right way and a wrong way to present it. And I want you to charge them before God not to be quarreling about words. Because obviously, at the church in Ephesus, there was a whole lot of quarreling about a whole lot of stuff. And he didn't want the saints to get tied up into that. And it's not that those words aren't important, but it's the way that we present them. So as we're looking for people we want to, we want to listen to or read, Pay attention to this. Is Jesus Christ central to what they're declaring? And I'm talking about the historical Christ, and we'll talk about that in a little bit later. And also, what's their tone? I'm saddened sometimes to listen to very qualified Bible teachers who somehow just can't help but zing it in on somebody else who disagrees with them. And they're always talking about how they're right and other believers just need to get their act together. It's just sad. And it's, it's detrimental. It's catastrophic for people who are listening. You just got to wonder how many people who were thinking about maybe considering Christ are turned off by the way you and I talk about the gospel and our disagreements about words. So that, those are the instructions that Paul's given Timothy to wrap up the section on those that he's going to entrust with the words that Paul had given him. I want to focus a little more here this morning on the third commandment that Paul's giving to Timothy here in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I want you to notice here that Paul is calling Timothy to do his best. Steve mentioned this week that he was glad that he just, all God asks you is your best. He doesn't ask you to do what you can't do. And also, remember in this context, this isn't just Paul telling Timothy to muscle up his strength and do it. He's already made references earlier in this letter about guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit that he's placed in you and by strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ to do this. So, so there is this backdrop, this understanding, and Paul's, Timothy and Paul have been together for a long time, years and years. So there's a lot of stuff that's not said in the text that's understood, and it's all in the context of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him and Timothy by faith appropriating what God's given him. But all Paul says Timothy needs to do is to do his best, but he does tell him to do his best. In 1952, there's this Jimmy Carter, former president. Whatever you think about his politics, let that aside. That's not the point of the illustration here. But... The future president, Jimmy Carter, sat in front of a demanding Admiral Rickover. 
And for two hours, this Rickover, he had just, Carter just got out of the Naval Academy. And for two hours, Rickover grilled him on topics, current events, seamanship, music, literature, naval tactics. And with each series of questions, Carter was feeling less and less qualified and more inept. But then finally, Rickover asked him the question that he was waiting for. How did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? And Carter's chest swelled up with pride. And he said, I was 59th in a class of 820. And he was waiting then for the admiral to say, hmm, pretty impressive. But it didn't happen. Rickover, just ask him one more question. Did you do your best? And Carter was going to answer yes, but then he thought back and he thought about times he could have learned more in class, times he could have studied when he didn't, times when he took the easy path and he said, no, sir, I didn't always do my best. And Rickover just sat there, didn't say anything for a long time. And then all he said was, why not? And the interview was over. God's not asking you to do what you can't do by his grace. But he is asking you to do everything you can do by his grace. And if your responsibility is teaching, that may be teaching the congregation. It may be in a mission group. It may be with the youth. It may be in Sunday school, parents. It's definitely you with your kids. God's not asking you for perfection but he's asking you to do everything you can do by his grace. And he's given you his word, and he expects us to get into that and do our best. And that's that's what Paul's asking Timothy to do. And who's going to decide if we did our best? It's not going to be you, and it's not going to be me. We're not going to evaluate each other, though it's good to get feedback. I could feel good about myself, but that's not worth anything. Notice here in the passage, do your best to present yourself to God. Paul's told, and Timothy knew this, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he said, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And he talks about, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You and I will stand before God. He is the one who's going to determine whether we did what we were supposed to do as teachers. And we need to to be listening to people who have the humility to recognize that it's only what God thinks of what we did and are doing that matters. The challenge is one of of excellence. Notice it both positively and negatively in this verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. That's the positive. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. That's the negative. Now, this word approved is interesting. Every now and then you, you see a you look at the meanings of the Greek words, and it's a picture really stands out. And this word approved, and I'm Dr. Steve or Eric or someone else who knows Greek. It's, I think it's dokimos, but you don't have to remember that. But in the ancient world, all, there were no bills. There was no paper money. There were no credit cards. All the, all the money was made from metal. It was heated until it was liquid, and then it was poured into molds and allowed to cool. And when the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. And the coins were comparatively soft, and so there was always that temptation to shave them off, the guys who were making them, shave them off a little bit more and keep some of that metal for themselves. And 
You weren't quite sure if you were getting a good, a good deal or not. But there were some money handlers, some guys who manufactured these coins, who were men of integrity. And they only put genuine, full, full weight money into circulations. And guess what these men were called? Dokimos. They were the approved. That was the title. If you wanted to get a good coin and you knew it was a good coin, you went to a Dokimos. You went to one of the guys who didn't shave off stuff off of the coin. You got the real deal, the full weight. And this is the word Paul uses here to Timothy. He tells him to do his best to present himself to God as one approved. He says, when you stand before God, Timothy, I want you to stand before God and know that you didn't shave anything off. You didn't cut any corners. You didn't rub it down. You didn't take a little bit for yourself. You gave your people the real deal, 100%, all of it. Negatively, on the other hand, he says, be approved a workman who does, has no need to be ashamed. Now, Paul's talked a lot about being ashamed already in this book, I don't know, in chapter 1. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, he tells Timothy in verse 8. He said, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, in verse 8. In verse 16, he says, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of me, kind of hinting to Timothy that it's possible. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, in verse 12. And by implication, though, Timothy, you shouldn't be either. But here, there's a different term. It's the same word, don't be ashamed, but not for the same reason. He's not telling him to be, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He says, don't be ashamed of the way you preach the gospel. It's a different idea. Negatively, we don't want to be people who are ashamed of the way we handle the gospel. There are people who are not ashamed of the gospel who should be ashamed of the way they handle the gospel. Modifying it, shaving it off, adding a little bit here, not talking about this, going too far in this direction. Paul says to Timothy, and he knew Timothy knew the gospel. He knew Timothy wasn't going to preach heresy. But he says, I want you to be a guy who molds, the, takes the gospel down, and you give people the full coin, unadulterated. Don't take anything off. Don't add anything to it. Stay away from your pet peeves. Preach the gospel in a way that you don't need to be ashamed. What's the basis of God's evaluation here? Rightly handling the word of truth. Now, the old King James, if you're familiar with the old King James, it was rightly dividing the word of truth. And the reason is that this word means to cut straight. And so the writers, translators of King James used the, focused on the cut part. But the idea is more one of, of the straightness. Stott says it's to cut a straight path. Lawrence Richards says it's to hold a straight course, like when you're sailing a ship. It basically means to preach the gospel accurately and plainly. Peterson, in his paraphrase, the, the message says, these people are laying out the truth plain and simple. And that's our goal as teachers. Lay out the truth plain and simple. Don't get complicated. Don't get fancy. Just... Give me the gospel, plain and simple. Look for those kinds of teachers. When you're done listening to them or reading them, you should be able to know what they said. I was watching a, a YouTube video of Alistair Begg preaching on Timothy, and he said sometimes at the end of the sermon, the husband says, I don't know what that guy said. 
And his wife says, you're right, there was nothing. So we want the gospel, we want it plain, we want it simple, we want it accurate. He handles the truth, the word, Stott says, with such scrupulous care that he both stays on the path and makes it easy, easy for others to follow. So we're not ashamed of the truth when we give it to people accurately. All of it, without arguing, without focusing on non-essentials, staying focused on what really matters. When Paul and Timothy wrote the second letter to the Corinthians, and if you read the title of 2 Corinthians, you know Timothy was in on writing 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul says in chapter 4 of that. We have renounced, we, Paul, Timothy, others, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Just an open declaration of the truth of Jesus Christ. So ask yourselves when you're reading or listening to people, to teachers, is the good news of Jesus Christ being presented accurately? Is it being presented fully? Is it central to what they have to say? Is there anything being added, anything being ignored, or anything being altered? And if so, you probably need to find a different source for your instruction. Time is running out faster than the passage is running out. There's a negative thing next, and I'll go through this fairly quickly because I want to get to the to the last two verses. But <clears throat> contrast to doing your best to be a workman who's not ashamed, approved by God, there's a negative here, the next commandment, avoid irreverent babble. Now, Paul has said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. It's an identical phrase. It's the only two times in the whole Bible that this expression is used, irreverent babble. It means profane, um, empty, meaningless discussions. And profane not in the sense of profanity like we use it, but profane in the sense of, the word there is, has to do with the word for threshold, and it means it's on the outside of the house. It's outside the body of truth. It doesn't mean it's itself ugly. It's just not the gospel. And there's a lot of stuff that's not ugly. It's just not the gospel. Good ideas, yeah, enter entertaining, interesting, yeah. But it's got, there's no life in it. He says, avoid, and again, it's be avoiding. It's an ongoing thing. Stay away from this irreverent babble. And in 1 Timothy, when he wrote to him then, and Timothy probably remembered it, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Possibility this is the beginning of Gnosticism and this idea that, well, there's Jesus, and then there's knowledge, and Jesus is a part of knowledge, but there's more than Jesus, and you just, let's get into all of this stuff, and your body doesn't really matter because it's your spirit that matters, and what you do with your body doesn't matter at all, and all of that, and that's, that's conjecture a little bit. We're not quite sure that's what that meant, but this idea of stay away from all this stuff that isn't Jesus, basically, if you want to boil it down. He's made numerous references to that, that problem elsewhere. Why? It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. If we're not centered on Christ, even if we're talking about religious stuff, good stuff, moral stuff, if it's outside of Christ and we're not focusing on him, Paul says, sooner or later, you just go back to who you are without Christ. And that is you live in the flesh, 
and you practice more and more ungodliness. And that's what was happening there. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene is a situation, it's a serious condition where because of a loss of blood supply, part the body tissue begins to die. And it's an interesting illustration here. When you move away from Jesus Christ and you get outside the threshold of the gospel and outside the proclamation of what Jesus Christ has done, historically, really, and that he's coming back, gangrene begins to set in. You move away from the source of life, and there is life nowhere else than in Jesus Christ, not the doctrine of Jesus. The doctrine is extremely important, but the doctrine will not give you life. Christ himself is the one who gives you life. You study the doctrine, so you point yourself to the person. Anything short of the person, it's still death. And you can be talking about all kinds of good Christian stuff. I just do not do well with those things. You can be talking about all kinds of stuff that's seemingly good, but if it's outside of Jesus Christ, death begins to settle in because where Jesus isn't, it's dead. Paul talked about the beginning of the epistle, the promise of life in Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. And in verse 10, our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And if you're outside the gospel, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's death. You're not going to find life anywhere else. And he gives a couple examples, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus is mentioned in, in 1 Timothy three or four years before. Paul had handed him over to Satan because he was saying things about God that weren't true, and he was teaching him not to blaspheme about that. And here we have him again. What about him and Philetus? Instead of rightly handling the truth, they've swerved from the truth as opposed to staying on the path, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, the resurrection had happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ had happened. But what these guys were saying, because they got off into speculations and philosophies and they spent hours and hours discussing words and terminologies and stuff like that, by the time they were done, they'd come to the conclusion that... As believers, we're already raised to life when we, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no bodily resurrection because the body doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what you do in your body. It's no wonder they were falling into more and more ungodliness. Life is only found in Christ. And the result of this was that they were upsetting the faith of some. Now, that doesn't mean that some people were getting upset. But it's this idea of capsizing or overturning. They were actually overturning the faith of some who didn't understand the gospel and the destruction was real. Now my time is gone. I've got a couple more minutes. But Paul concludes here with verse 19. Now in ESV it says, but God's firm foundation stands. It, in this case, New American Standard, it, I think is better. Nevertheless, it says, in spite of all of this, in spite of all the other things besides Waldo in the picture, in spite of all the other possibilities and falsehoods and people who were distorting the truth and upsetting people and turning people away from the gospel, nevertheless, God's firm foundation stands. And what's this foundation? Well, he had already written to the Ephesians earlier and talked about that foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. That stands. doesn't matter what anybody says. doesn't matter how many detractors, how many deceivers, how much falsehood. The foundation is God's foundation. Notice it's a firm foundation and that it stands. 
when you really get into looking at the, reading the epistles and reading them with your eyes open, those churches were a mess. That doesn't mean, oh, okay, so we can be a mess too. But what's amazing about it is 2,000 years later, the gospel is still being declared to every people, tribe, and tongue. God's firm foundation stands. It's a foundation that is revealed in Scripture. All the prophets and the apostles declare that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is life itself, and that stands. Paul says no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That foundation stands, and that's the one thing we have to keep going back to. Some things are up in the air. Is Timothy going to rise to the challenge? Are the people he's training going to be faithful? Are some people going to fall prey to deceitful teachers? Obviously, yes. But the foundation isn't going to move. And that's what God is building his church on. And he's encouraging Timothy, Timothy, build on that foundation. Focus on the gospel. Handle the word of truth rightly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The historical fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, gave up his life for sinners, was died and was buried and was raised again three days later, and now lives in those who put their faith in him, sanctifying them, making us more and more like himself day after day, and one day he will come back and get us, and we will be transformed into his likeness. So if you are not, if your teachers are not telling you that and focusing on that, you need to find different teachers. And if you're not telling your kids that, and your Sunday school kids that, and your spouse that, and your brothers and sisters in Christ that, or your home groups or whatever, if, if you're not taking people to Jesus, they're not going to have life. There's no life anywhere else. We've got to stay focused, looking at the Word of God and declaring that truth to people. There's a foundation, and there's a seal on it. This building has a seal. If you go outside, there's a little seal down in the corner, BPOE, because that's what it used to be. That's what it was for. Those, the seals say what the building's consecrated for, and God's foundation in Jesus Christ make these two statements. God knows who are his. On the divine side, there's no question. The Lord knows who his teachers are. Let's be those teachers. And then let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Everything's going to be sorted. God will judge that. He will sort it out. And as the worship team comes, just let me ask you a couple questions here. Ryan, you can come up. As a teacher, whatever your responsibility, are you careful to handle the word of truth carefully? Don't just be a moralist. Don't be a moralist. Don't be a do-betterist. Those are good, but they're not sufficient. Point people to Jesus. Are you presenting Christ in all his glory? Are you showing people how he is the fulfillment of God's plan for them in every aspect of their life? There's no part of our lives where Jesus doesn't apply. Do we know how to teach our, our kids that? Do we know how to teach each other that? And as a listener, be careful who you listen to. It does make a difference. There's a lot of Jesus junk out there. Make sure you're focusing on people who will present to you the risen Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that 
what you have said would sink deep in the hearts and what was just me would be forgotten, that you would do your work in each life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here and you don't know what we're talking about, who this Jesus is, I mean, you've heard about him, but if you've never met him, if you don't know him, people here would love to talk to you about it. Just find somebody, and if they're too scared to do it, they'll find somebody else that would be glad to introduce you to Jesus Christ because he's the only one really, really worth knowing. If you have prayer requests, prayer needs, and you'd like somebody to pray with you, there'll be people up in the front afterwards to pray with you and encourage you. And I just want to leave you with this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.